boy, 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 ladies and gentlemen, what a week has been in sports washing. My gosh, Saudi Arabia basically cops a whole sport. Karim Benzema and Golo Conte, fucking hell, it's crazy. In the words, public enemies, Chuck D. Bring the noise. FM Podcast Network, I am Charlie Taylor, and this is What's Good. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, hope you've all had a good week in circumstances. I know you had, I know you has had a good week. N'Golo Conte, who's <laughs> fucking gone to Saudi Arabia for fucking 86 million pounds a year. Two year deal, bruv. Imagine in two years you just, for, I mean... Uh, I don't even know if he will play. Like he's been, you know, majority injured for the past couple of years for Chelsea, and it's just been like, wow, you know, barely, barely see the dude, right? But then here he is, <laughs> signed a two-year deal with fucking uh, uh, somewhere in Saudi Arabia. I don't know. <laughs> I didn't look too deep into it, but fucking hell, boys, getting a check, 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 GD check. Oh man, sports watching is really a thing. It's actually, it's, it's happening just on a weekly basis in some fashion especially with like you know the football season over and every year just seems to get worse and worse like you know um, first you know it was previously like you know China just buying players for stupid amounts of money right and now Saudi Arabia doing it at first it was US doing it like you know we'll see you know Pele and the LA NY Cosmos and that speaking of which Messi's gone to Miami (laughs) So that's the thing. <laughs> um, but yeah, fuck it. It's, it's wild. It's wild. This whole thing's wild. But anyway, past that, I hope all is blessed. Let's get into the show. We have a tech media society in life. Um, and with that said, for my 84 begin. Email, socials, writing, all that in the full show, as well as the music and podcasts under the 5 EPN. Here are digging digits and in such a source this week. Video game music for the In Search of Source episode on their landmark episode of 69. Nice. And also DITD where me and Ben do our mid-year report. And uh, I get ahead of myself and name 51 projects you can you can listen to the drop this year. Um, so yeah, that was fun. Uh, but yeah, let it be drop. That's good to show. I just realised for in a week where I've, uh, I've clumped two Indian stories together. Um, one just kind of silly, and one uh, well. Well, you know, I mean, we'll get there. Uh, an Indian official is suspended um, after draining an entire reservoir to retrieve his phone. Can you imagine? But I've only got a fine and I guess a suspension, but the phone didn't even work afterwards. So it's, that's, just, that's the hilarious thing about it. It's just like he, he did all that and proceeded to still lose his phone. All of that for just for a phone, one thing, and then the phone's broke can't even retrieve it that's absurd anyway uh train crash um in india kills more than 280 and injures at least 900 uh manchester city win the fa cup universal basic income of 1600 pounds will be trialed for 30 english residents and i can't think of anything better right now that that just mm, 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 mm. whoever those 30 people are make the most of it please please make the most of it I would love that for it to be a thing right now. Absolutely crazy. And lastly, as I kind of mentioned in the beginning, the PGA merges, quote-unquote merges, uh, with Saudi-owned Live Golf. Outstanding bit of sports washing um, by Saudi Arabia there. Um, really good plays. Um, waited only a year for the PGA to fucking fold um, after all that grandstanding last year. Um, they already fold after a year. And, um, yeah, RIP Golf. <laughs> Just, wow, crazy. Uh, 
crazy that Saudi Arabia literally copped a whole sport. And I don't know, it's merging, different, but come on, bruv. The dude who heads up Live Golf is now the chairman of the whole thing. You can't tell me. You you can't tell me the PGA didn't just concede in some fashion. It's absurd. Anyway, I would love to get into that, but I, didn't, I couldn't be asked to find an article for it. So we're going for this instead. Uh, start with tech. And, um, you know, I, as, a, as a person who rocks an Android and has rocked an Android for, well, yeah, for all of my smartphone life especially. Um, obviously, you know, before smartphone life, it was just, you know, regular Samsung, uh, you know, one of those um, uh, uh, scroll-up phones. I, I don't know how you want to call it. It's not. It wasn't a flip phone, but it was like a, you know, push it up, like, and then the number will come out. Um, yeah, I forget the specific name for it, but yeah, you know, those, and then when I got into smartphones, I think my first one was a Galaxy S4, uh, LG G4, um, and now at the moment I've got a Samsung S20, so, um, solid. Anyway, um, but, you know, and I've, and I've, you know, I've had Android for a while, right, um, for, my, well, the majority of my adult life, especially, all of my adult life, um, you know, I've started to get into just more different apps you know what i mean like those apps you see on uh those youtube pages and they're trying to like you know oh get this random app that does this one thing um and i've got those apps that do that one thing like there's one i got called fake standby which um if you when you press when you press on the thing and you have it on you know your quick buttons it makes your feet screen go black but your phone's still technically on so you literally just scroll up and your phone's where it was um, this this is good for like you know when you're spinning something on YouTube, maybe some music or whatever, and you know how you know for videos and video apps in general, um, maybe you just want the sound of it. I don't know, right? Maybe you're on Netflix and you just want the sound of that film you've watched twenty times, but you don't want your, your screen, you don't want your phone screen to be like constantly on all night. Put it on fake standby, boom, then your screen's black and the sound will come come out. Uh, um, you know, no change there. And then when you're done, just scroll it up, boom, then your screen's right where it was. Little things like that. Not everyone needs them. I don't need them. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's just nice to have. So we get into this. Uh, this is via Emily Stewart, um, via Vox, and it's called, Do We Really Need an App for Everything? The answer is no, we don't, but <laughs> let's, just, let's just see what happens in this. On a flight about a year ago, I found myself in a predicament. I could not pay for my customary glass of plain wine to help calm the nerves. The problem wasn't that I didn't have cash or a credit card on me, but instead that I didn't have the airline's app, which was necessary to complete the transaction. I was motivated to get on the pl- get the plain wine, but not that motivated. I gave up somewhere between downloading the app on the shoddy in-flight Wi-Fi and uploading my credit card to it. So now it sits idle on my phone as do countless other apps I've had to get for one reason or another over the years, the vast majority of which I do not want or use. It really does feel like there's an app for everything these days, often for things where they're not really needed. We all manage to do business with each other for years, and years without having to pull out our phones every corner. Admittedly, the cultural peak of there's an app for that mania was was years ago, a moment when, in many cases, said apps actually propose making our lives better. But it's been forever since pe- many people have felt enthusiastic about downloading applications instead of serving customers. Apps now serve companies and have transformed into a sort of necessary evil to receive uh, some product or service. The hotel has an app. The dentist has an app. The restaurant down the street has an app. Apps are a way for companies to get customers into their ecosystems, to try to entice them with promotions and discounts, and importantly, to get their data to track them or send that data to others. Consumers are sometimes sold on the convenience ploy. Once you're set up on that McDonald's app, it does make your next order easier. But is it worth? Is the bother worth it to download the app in the first place? And once you do, what about that data trade-off? In an age of endless data breaches, is ordering that Big Mac 30 seconds faster worth the risk of a stolen credit card number? Quote, The proliferation of apps has many benefits for people, said Karen Gulo an analyst and senior media relations specialist at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, the EFF, in an email. Unfortunately, most businesses use apps to harvest and monetize our personal data. People can use their settings to block some data, collecting and tracking, but app makers often find ways to get around that, unquote. 
So we're all stuck with a bunch of apps floating around on our phones that really seriously were not necessary, many of which are tracking us in a way that is also really seriously not necessary. With the rise of mobile phones came the rise of apps, which to a certain extent makes sense. If we're going to be carrying devices around with us all the time, we might as well make use of them. Apps offer a promise of convenience for users and for companies' dollar signs. Apps let businesses learn about their customers, make them offers, and nudge them in ways that they hope will lead to more profits. In 2017 in Japan, McDonald's found that customers using this app spent 35% more on average. McDonald's said the app made uh, made ordering more seamless. So people used it more often. It also noted that people took the app suggestions for add-ons and then stored those orders to be replaced later, which translated to higher spending. Quote, learning those habits and turning that back into marketing is one of the big draws, said Dominic Celito, clinical assistant professor of management science and systems. What a, what a long-ass occupation name that is at the University of Buffalo, at Buffalo School of Management. I feel this is a school for everything. It's just it's funny. Um, the more app makers know about you, the better able they are to market and sell to you. They often also sell that information to third parties that want to reach you too. And there aren't a ton of legal barricades around how much data apps can collect and what they can do with it. Another quote, there's really no limit to data collection. So this data can be collected about you and shared and sold between different data brokers or analytics companies to build really granular consumer profiles which can then be used for targeting adverti- targeted advertising and sold for other purposes, says Suzanne Bernstein, a f- uh, law fellow at the Electronic Privacy Information Center. Epic. Like, like that. Uh, sure, maybe there's a lengthy privacy disclosure, but nobody reads those, even if they do get into the details. Another quote, this whole system is sustained by this imbalance of power and control, this asymmetry, where we're kind of in the dark as consumers as to what is happening with our data. And my consumers do get to understand what's happening when they what they find can be a little bothersome. Earlier this year, a court in Canada set, approved a settlement with customers of the coffee chain Tim Hortons over app users having their geolocation data collected without notice and consent. The remedy was that these customers affected would get a free hot beverage and a baked good. Oh, that is so easy. That is so easy. Imagine that. Sorry we collected data about you for years and years and years and used it for nefarious purposes. But here's a hot coffee and a a muffin. (laughs) Mm. Outstanding. Anyway, continuing on. Um, McDonald's and Chick-fil-A are both introducing features that let them track customers' locations on mobile app orders, supposedly so their food will be fresh and crisp when they arrive to pick it up. Some of the tracking and data stuff can be quite disturbing. In 2022, the FTC reached a settlement with the period tracker app Flow after finding it was sharing personal health information with marketing analytics companies like Facebook and Google. Quote, Not every single company is doing this, but I think, unfortunately, it is one of the reasons why you see a proliferation of apps, said Jennifer King, Privacy and Data Policy Fellow at the Stanford Institute for Human-Centered Artificial Intelligence. Uh, the pandemic made our app palooza situation in many areas more palpable as more people flocked to apps for shopping and entertainment and education and uh, companies were uh, were eager to oblige. The move was moved to social distancing. Uh, I, keep, I, I never, I never, I, I've said this before, but I never liked the term social distancing. Why is it not physical? Because you are physically distancing from people. You're not socially. Like, I can still talk to you if I'm two feet away. Just, just on the foundational level doesn't make sense to me. Anyway. The move to social distancing meant many businesses turned to phones as a way to make what were once in-person interactions virtual. Even as life got back to normal, the insistence on apps has persisted. Now your hotel key is an app, as is your train ticket. Your dentist or doctor has maybe rolled out an app to book appointments, even though the old way honestly worked just fine. At a restaurant, it is not uncommon to wind up having to scan a QR code that eventually results in you downloading some app just so you can place an order, to, order to or pay, um, which my pops has been lamenting for the past couple of weeks um, <laughs> of having the, that one time he's gone to Nando's. And, what was it one time? Um, no, a friend of his um, was lamenting the fact that um, they went to Nando's and, um, and, they had, and everything was on the app, right? And you just had to go through the app and do it. And uh, she had to get her daughter to do it, and it's just um, yeah, it's was, it was very 
I get it though, you know what I mean? It's what was wrong with just, you know, knowing what you wanted, take the menu with you, get in a line, order, boom. Like it's, it's not it's not hard, but I guess it cuts out the middleman, right? And um, you know, the the you know, the the people working don't have to literally just, you know, um oh uh, what what heat do you want with that? And you know, what do you want, do you want this with this? Um what size do you want? They can they can just get on with it and just say, yo, we got this on, boom and continue on with their work. So, you know, from a productivity standpoint, um, and from a capitalist standpoint, I completely understand why this is a thing now, and I'm surprised um, counters even exist anymore. Um, I, I, I guarantee you, within a few years, um, there, there'll be no such thing as just, like, a counter. You know, when you hit up, when you hit up like, a wing stop or something, um, you, you're going to order off an app. You know, you're not you're going to order off an app. Counters won't exist. Um, you, may be, you may want to. You may want to use the counter. Um, but no, no, it's not going to happen anymore. Anyway, where are we at? A quote: "That's going to be a relation. There's, yeah, that's going to be a relationship where they're providing service to the uh, to the restaurant, uh, but they're taking your day without a doubt." King said. The awkward thing about the situation is that apps aren't always the greatest deals for the companies that insist on having them. Many websites perform just fine on mobile now, which hasn't be- always been the case in terms of user experience and even tracking. And if not enough people use an app because there isn't need for it, the endeavor turns out to be a waste of time and money. Quote, it's like having a TikTok page. I think it's just that people feel like they need to have one because they hear that people use apps. Said uh, Sucharita Kodali, Vice President uh, and Principal Analyst at Forrester. Not everybody needs an app, unquote. Has it stopped everybody, or at least a lot of businesses, from having one? There are a bunch of appealing statistics about mobile apps that get bu- get most businesses worked up into a lather, said Jason Goldberg, co- uh, commerce strategy officer at advertising firm Publicis. Uh, according to the, bu- the business of apps, there are about 8- 1.8 million apps available in the Apple App Store and 2.3 in the Google Play Store. For both businesses, is among the businesses among the mo- most popular categories. People spend hours each day on their phones, not on apps, and spend billions of dollars on apps. Goldberg said companies' most valuable customers are often on their apps. All of this com- convinces a lot of businesses, business leaders uh, they need an app too. That will be the key to juicing their business. Whilst the only problem with that is, it, is it's basically wrong, Goldberg said. While there's a huge amount of people who download apps, you know what they're not. A huge amount of people, you know what they are not. Okay, right. I think I read that wrong, I don't know. A huge amount of people who use that app more than once after they download it. There are astronomical abandonment rates. And that is a definite thing I have. Um, you know, I have I have Deliveroo and Uber Eats on my phone. I maybe use one of them maybe once a year. I, I barely use them. I used it once a, a month ago, maybe. I think I used Deliveroo. That's about it. I keep seeing Uber Eats, I'm just like, I don't really care about this anymore. Like, the most I used to use it, use both of them, was during university. I don't do that anymore. <laughs> I just I just don't. I, I don't need to. I don't really want to, uh, for money's sake. Like, it's just, I probably should delete them, if I'm being real. Just Eat as well. I have Just Eat. I probably have Just Eat on my phone. Let me check. Yeah, let me check. All right, quick. J, Just Eat. Yes, I have Just Eat as well. I have the big three in my phone. And I barely fucking use them. Why do I still have them? I'll probably delete them after this episode. Who knows? Anyway, continuing on. It's kind of like a credit card for an individual retailer. You maybe sign up for once to get a discount and then never use again. You download an app to make one purchase or to navigate one leg of vacation. Or on a day when you're feeling inspired to kickstart your diet. And then you dot 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 forget. The company may be getting some data on you still. But not as much as if you were a power user. Which there is no sense of you to be. Quote, that's the most that's the fundamental question brands need to ask themselves. What kind of relationship do you have with your shoppers? And are you one that has a lot of frequent interactions, or do you have moments like in travel where somebody is going to have fifty different questions? Kadali from Forrester said, For a lot of companies, the answer to that question is no. Kadali said that a lot of businesses have rolled out apps basically on account of FOMO, meaning fear of missing out, because they see everyone else doing it. Goldberg echoed the sentiment, adding that businesses have had plans for an app in place for a while, and so have just proceeded without really asking whether it makes sense. Quote, one of th- only the very biggest and best companies can win the mobile app game, he said. Often I see the mid-tier companies and long-tier companies that shouldn't be trying to compete with Goliaths. 
that they make the mistake of trying to emulate what Amazon and Walmart do. Unquote. Yes, there is da- yes, the data is valuable to companies, but it's not as exclusive to apps of, as it used to be. Quote, you can get just as much data from good mobile web pages as you can from a mobile app, Goldberg said. There's a bit of silver lining here, which is that app makers have a harder time trafficking, tracking you than they used to by design, specifically by Apple's design. In 2021, the iPhone makeup updated the system so that people sometimes get the option when they open an app to ask it not to track. It works. Dot, dot, dot. Okay-ish, but it's not perfect. The FTC is currently working on rulemaking around commercial surveillance economy and just how businesses collect, analyze, and profit from people's data. In the US, some states, such as California, are making headway on privacy laws or have them in place. Privacy advocates say that what the US really needs is a sweeping federal privacy law, which isn't exactly on the horizon. So, in the meantime, we're swimming in the sea of apps, many of which we don't want or need. Companies are making money off the data that accompanies them, though not as much, not as much as would probably like, and they're not getting much better at protecting that data. Quote, there's two pathways this can go. One pathway is people get more and more protective of their privacy, and that spurs legislation or some sort of movement that changes the way this works. Or on the flip side, we all just get desensitized to it and say, bummer, my credit card got stolen again, Silito said. Perhaps at the very least we acknowledge we truly do not want or need this many apps. The convenience case really loses its oomph when you're going to your phone to rescue every little detail in your life. Or in my case, when you're in the air attempting to secure a single glass of Pinot Grigio. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of, it's a thing I've been thinking about, hence why I've brought it up in this particular episode. But, um, you know, I've, I, I look at my apps and, you know, I use maybe 10, 10 of them at least once a day and the rest of them are just there you know um i have like i have like a a translator don't know why never use it you know i mean i have a i don't know fucking (laughs) i'm just trying to look at what random shit i got uh yeah yeah hey i got a thing called hey because i have strip lights by hey and i just i don't even use the app to adjust the thing is things anymore i just have a white light uh i just make it white and then um and then just take out the plug and then put it back in when i want to um so it's literally just another light for me um i don't use it to make it blue or make it red anymore i can't i can't really be asked um it's not it's kind of no point i have a collage app because you never know might me making a collage of some shit for for you know if i ever do an interview um, which I might have in the pipeline, actually. Um, so stay tuned on that. Uh, random ass games like you know, I have I've had this game Mini Metro for years, barely play it anymore. Um, it's a good game, I just barely play it anymore. Uh, you know, Netflix haven't used that in ages. Uh, yeah, it's just random shit, man. I have this one called Radio Garden, which is literally just radios from the rest of the world, and you can listen to you know radio from spain live why don't know just got it <laughs> just got it there <laughs> oh my gosh it's so silly um snapseed i don't know why i have that anymore i don't edit photos anymore so I put up, you know i'm gonna delete that right now there you go look snapseed uh there you go snapseed uninstall okay done there you go that's one right there i have made the pro i've made i am already making progress and hopefully when you guys listen to this you delete at least one app just go for it. Just find an app that you don't use and you feel like you probably won't ever. Yeah, here we go. Uber Eats. I'm pretty convinced I'm never going to use it anymore. I'm pretty convinced. If I do order food, it mainly is either just your delivery. I've, I I use them. I think Uber Eats was for, again, in uni uh, when I was in Southampton. And I think the McDonald's down there only was on Uber Eats. So that's why. <laughs> Everything else, gone. No point. Um, so yeah, I've deleted Reese and I've deleted Snapseed, so there you go. I'm making progress already. We do not need so many fucking apps on our phone. Even even the other week when I went across the tracks, they they, they use um they use a, a festival app called Woof. I use it, use it for across the tracks, and then after a week I'm, I'm I've binned it. <laughs> and then I guarantee you, if I go there next year, I'm gonna download Woof a couple of days before, and then I'm gonna use it during the day. Uh, during that one day across the tracks and then afterwards it's going to be in the bin again so 
It's funny, man. It's just so funny how these apps work. But um, yeah, man, just uh, declutter yourself, man. Declutter yourself. It makes you feel good. If, if I mean, if not for a data collection perspective, it hopefully it makes you feel good in that way at least. Okay, so media segment, and we're talking about podcasts. Not this podcast, but just podcasts in general as a concept. Um, it is now twenty years old. Happy birthday, podcast! Um, you know, I've been I've, I've probably said this before, right? But um, I've been a voracious podcast listener for maybe, well, definitely over a decade. Um, I I don't know whether it was like audiobooks first or podcasts first. It was probably podcasts first and then audiobooks, but um, yeah, there was uh, probably nearly 15 years now. Probably 15 years, actually. I'm 27, so that would make it 12. So, yeah. yeah, probably probably around 12-ish, yeah. Um, just, you know, using podcasts. Um, so, yeah, I've been, I've been on it for at least um, three quarters of that time. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's just um, I found this article about it. DB Personal, very authentic, how podcasts took over the world in 20 years. Um, this is by Rachel Arosetti, Arosti, 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 love that name, Arosti, uh, via The Guardian, let's jump right in. Do you remember life before podcasts? Yes, obviously it's likely to be the short answer, podcasting is still a relatively youthful medium after all. In fact, it's nearly 20 years this month since the format's invention. Open Source, a, pl- a politics and uh, culture discussion show hosted by journalist Christopher Linden, uh, Leiden, Leiden debuted on the summer in the summer of 2003, and is widely considered the first ever podcast. Nothing was actually called podcast in that point. The term was coined the following year by Ben Hammersley in an article for The Guardian. Yeah, if you are one of the approximately 20 million people in the UK who listen to podcasts, and especially if you're a heavy user like me, I listen while I'm cleaning, cooking, eating, walking on the bus, having a bath, essentially anything that doesn't engage my word brain. Uh, the art form will have subtly but comprehensively changed the flavour of your everyday life. For many of us, podcasts have become constant companions, fostering parasocial relationships, exposing us to candid conversations and unearthing thrilling, sometimes salacious stories. During their short lifespan, to put it in perspective, we are now at the equivalent of 1950, where TV drama is concerned, and 1912 for widely available recorded music. Podcasts have loudly made their presence felt but their impact has stretched far beyond the podcast app on your phone, which I only have one of. Haha, <laughs> get on it. Uh, it's Pocket Cast. And the forum is also waging a stealthy campaign to make remake pop culture, uh, nudging comedy, television, film, celebrity, and even music in new directions. What was the first podcast you listened to? For a lot of people, myself included, the answer will be the Ricky Gervais show. Funny enough, I got the audiobooks, before the podcast, uh, I, I don't think I ever listened to the podcast. I listened, I listened to them via, as audiobooks. Um, I don't know, I think it was via, it might have been via iTunes. Um, they just had like, um, yeah, just, um, yeah, it wasn't the Ricky Gervais show like the radio show, which I'm about to explain. But um, yeah, I think I, I think I listened to the audiobooks first and maybe got to the podcast at some point. Um, but yeah, it's fascinating how that works. Uh, an edited, downloadable follow-up to the XFM radio program, Gervais presented alongside Stephen Merchant and Carl Bilvington. It was first released in 2005 via The Guardian's website. Um, it's on-demand delivery method is perhaps the most obvious distinguishing factor between a podcast and radio show. By 2006, The Rick Gervais Show was the world's most popular podcast, aver- averaging two- 261,670 downloads per week. Oh, I'd love that. That'd be great. In a sense, we have barely moved on. Our show set up, comedically gifted pals, tuning the proverbial, remains one of the most popular approaches for hip podcasts. Like Parenting Hell, My Therapist Ghosted Me, uh, and Wolf and Owl are all currently currently fixtures of the podcasting top 10. And yet, in the intervening years, the podcast has transformed the comedy world itself. While Gervais and Merchant were far from outsiders, they had only recently created one of the decade's biggest sitcoms. Their model ended up breaking down barriers in the industry. Podcasts are generally a DIY medium, and there are no official gatekeepers. Quote, the beauty of podcasts is anyone can do it. You're not a slave to the commissioning process or doing it through the lens of an exec who doesn't really understand the lived experiences of a community, says Poppy J, co-host of the award-winning Brown Girls Do It Too. 
when they were growing up, Jay and her co-host Rubina Pabani, uh, who both have a background in factual TV production, felt comedy was something for other people. A perfect storm of British-Asian familial expectations, being a comedian, uh, quote, is so far down the pecking order, it's not even on the ticket, says Jay. And the very male Bollywood slapstick and aggressively white male British stand-up that they were exposed to growing up, uh, another quote, uh, we always talk about how Jim Davison was the idea of who should be funny, meant they had, quote, no, I had no idea we could pr- access that space, says Pabani. In short, were, we're, in short were, were it not for podcasts, I, I always get confused about the were it not. I, I don't know, it just doesn't sound right saying it phonetically. Were it not, it makes sense, but I don't know, I just freak out saying it. It, it discombobulates me when I see it. Uh, were it not for podcasts, there is no way the pair would have found themselves professionally engaged in business of making people laugh. And the inarguably are. Last year, they embarked on a nationwide tour of the podcast, The Stage Show, an hour of skit, storytelling, and conversation. Now, Jay and Pabani are keen to fur- continue further down this road. Their latest ambition is to perform stand-up as a double act. Live podcast attracts punters, uh, quote, who have never come to see a live comedy show before, unquote, says Ophelia Francis, head of live comedy of London venues 2 North Down and 21 Soho. It follows that they also tend to be the most reliably popular events, quote, some of the biggest and quickest selling shows that we've had at the venues, unquote. The accessible nature of podcasts means they are able to attract large audience keen to repay the host for their hitherto free entertainment and see a comedy show they are guaranteed to connect with thanks to their existing intimacy with the performance. Uh, often these live podcasts translate to bigger gigs than already successful comedian hosts uh, would have sold in their day jobs. The wildly successful Parenting Hell podcast, pre- presented by Rob Becky and Josh Widdicombe, has recently been on an arena tour. Even the guests on high-profile podcasts such as Off Menu see a big boost in ticket sales, says Francis. I, 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 it's funny um, how I listen to barely any podcasts in the grand scheme of things. I, if I, if I showed, if I gave you a ballpark number. Uh, two, four. I mean, some some of these don't even fucking like go on anymore. Let me let me let me throw that in the dead shows folder. I have a dead shows folder just just so I know. Uh, two, four, six, eight, ten, twelve, fourteen, sixteen, eighteen, about twenty ish, twenty ish podcasts, and then I have like a few that are just there, and I I I want to spin them. But I just never have the time. Um, stuff like Have You Heard George's Podcast, which I have 25 episodes of, and that like his last one was like fucking 2021. Uh History of <coughs> Excuse me, History of Africa, um, Avatars, Braving the Elements, Cerebro. I want to listen to these, but I just don't have the time. It's so funny how like they're just talking about these podcasts and I just have no fucking clue. I'm <laughs> just on these fucking podcasts. I don't even, I don't know what parenting hell was. Okay, so they're going. Um, I'm going to skip a little bit for the sake of time. Um, but it's just it's just um interesting how because uh, <clears throat> they're going off like um oral um oral thoughts about this. But I want to get into some other stuff. Um, that obviously because we're mentioning podcasts and comedy. Um, but they're going to talk about other stuff as well. So I want to get to that as well. If the Ricky Gervais show was not your gateway podcast, Serial probably was. Debut in 2014, uh, 2014, it saw journalist Sarah Koenig uh, investigate the 1999 killing of Heyman Nee, breaking records by becoming the first podcast to top 5 million downloads later that year. The following year won a Peabody Award. In 2023, Adnan Syed, uh, the man serving a life sentence for Lee's murder, was released after the show highlighted flaws in the original case, though Maryland Appeals Court has recently reinstated the murder conviction and Syed's legal, te- legal status remains uncertain. Since Serial's release, there have been a multiple report, been multiple reports of impending TV adaptations, none of which have made, yet made it to air. I mean, plenty of documentaries have, so. Uh, but TV platforms, especially in the US, are increasingly busy with podcast adaptations. Aaron Hart is the head of TV and film at US firm Wondery. Um, his job is to transition the podcast company True Crime or True, True Crime Adjacent uh, wears into a scripted series. Previous star-studded successes have included The Shrink Next Door and Dr. Death. For commissioners, the appeal of this podcast to drama model is myriad. Podcasts act as proof of concept, he says, uh, demonstrating the story's basis of structure and propulsive narrative, both crucial for binge-friendly f- streaming material. Another advantage is the meticulous research that goes into producing a high-quality factual podcast, one typically takes six to nine months to make. 
wow, <laughs> fuck, fuck me then, <laughs> uh, which results in richly detailed drama, says Hart. He also points out uh, that he is often able to start pitching process with A-list talent who were won over by the original podcast already attached. All of this makes podcast adaptations very attractive for networks and streaming platforms. Hart says uh, that hit podcast built in hit po- a hit podcast built-in audience is also very appealing, but doesn't that mean the target viewership is already familiar with the plot? Quote, it's more insight seeing how certain event told within a podcast can be filled out more in the television side, says Hart. Audiences want to learn everything they can behind these stranger-than-fiction stories. Everything is the operative word. The true crime boom has seen the same stories told many times over podcasts, documentaries, scripted dramas, and multiple articles. Now the trend is extending beyond known criminals and into the world of business. Last year's hit, podca- hit podcast to TV adaptations included Hearts We Crashed, about the fall of We Work, and Dropout, uh, about fraudulent startup Theranos. This year, film is getting in on the act. April saw the Ben Affleck movie Air chronicle the inception of Air Jordans. In May, we witnessed the rise of fall of Blackberry, and this month sees Eva Longoria make her film directing debut with Flaming Hot. The original story of Flaming Hot Cheetos. Yes, really. I'm gonna okay. I kind of wish I went as long as possible not knowing that. That's just stupid. The podcast model is popularized the documentation, then dramatization of real stories, something that alongside the glut of reboots, prequels, adaptations, and brand spin-offs forms part of a part of a movement. Uh, the New Yorker exasper- exasperatedly christened the numbing rise of IP TV. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, let me skip a little bit because uh, for the sake of time, there is plenty of uh, more you can read. I'm skipping a lot here. Um, but yes, yeah, uh, definitely worth, worth a read. Um, where do we go from here? According to numerous reports, we have reached peak podcasts. But the narrative is iffy. The New York Times sounded the alarm back in 2019, citing the huge quantity of shows being launched each month. But listenership has practically doubled since. This year, the idea that the overinflated podcast bubble is set to burst gained traction again, with Vulture's Nicholas Quar uh, warning that 2023 is going to hurt. Yeah, if even the format does dwindle, which is highly unlikely, experts are forecasting continued audience growth. Excuse me, podcasts are already ahead of the game. For those invested in the industry's future, this is not a format with potentially fluctuating popularity, per state of mind. Barnes considers them more uh, more of an aesthetic than a medium. It's a freedom of speech thing. You can go deep and not be worried about being edited. Next year, focusing on podcasts as a visual format rather than an audio one. Already filmed versions of quite a few podcasts are available to watch on YouTube. Quote, podcasts have got to be platform agnostic, but the contents, contents got to be true to the core of what has made them so engaging, which is deeply personal and very authentic. With that increasingly elastic definition in mind, perhaps podcasts might continue to influence pop culture. Maybe they'll simply become it. Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe, maybe in time, right? As um, you know, my mum's generation um, ages, and then my generation ages. You know, in time, in time, um, it'll become a thing. I think uh, where you know, talk shows. I feel like talk shows on TV are a very dwindling product. And podcasts will kind of replace that. Um, I don't know if they'll just give podcasters, you know, IP that's already existing. Um, but maybe they'll just give them the keys to just do their podcast, but just do it on their channel, wherever it is. And, um, and you know, just get a bit of more money, you know what I mean? And just, uh, you know, the ability to do more stuff, right? Maybe that's the case. Um, I can see that happening. Um, but, yeah, man. Podcasts are a very fascinating medium. Very, very fascinating medium. Like from a storytelling perspective, I think it's very good. Um, I just um, there, there is, there's always. Um, I'm, I'm just. It, it adds to the eclectic nature of several of a lot of people. I don't, I don't think people listen to the same type of podcasts I do. By that, I mean. The pon- the same, the same pot. Like people ain't watching. If if I gave you two, my top two podcasts, I guarantee you there are many people that listen to those same two podcasts. And the same when it goes to like top five. I don't think people listen. Anybody listens to my exact top five podcasts that I listen to, whatever they may be. Um, I I can take a guess of which ones they are. Um, but 
regardless, I guarantee you that they don't. <laughs> I guarantee you that everyone has their own top five, and that's kind of cool, right? That's kind of cool that people just um have can, can can be unique in their own taste when it comes to podcasting. Um, will that work in terms of viewers, uh, listenership? I don't know. Here, here, here we are, and uh, here's why. Here's the point where I don't care. Um, but you know, it still is. Um, it still is very fascinating on the face. So yeah. Happy birthday podcast, soon. But move on to this uh, live segment, which I've, uh, which is, I don't know, it just feels like it feels like it, um, it can help a lot uh, with uh, not just not just me, but maybe yourself. Who knows? Because you know, I always think about memories right um you know we're very i'm i'm very reflective i don't know about you guys but um you know i constantly think about you know that one time in school where this happened or you know this one time when i was on holiday and this happened and you know you just you just think you 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 regularly think back right um not with any not with any purposeful thought but you know something might you might go past something it reminds you something i went past um I went down the uh, uh, road that I went down for primary school every day, and uh, I for- I totally forgot that there used to be a petrol station right in the middle of the right in the middle of the street, not in the middle of the road, but like um, in the middle of the length of the street. And now they're just houses, and they have been for like fifteen years. And I totally forgot about it until someone reminded me. I was like, "Oh yeah, this used to be like one big petrol station." Um, but you know, memories come and go. Um, unfortunately. Um, but I found this um, article just randomly, as as random as it can get, one of my most random picks. Um, this is by Susan Krauss Whitbourne, PhD, ABPP, um, via Psychology Today. It's called A New Way to Think About Your Oldest Memories. So let's jump right in and see what happens. Thinking about your own personal past or biographical memory is a process that essentially happens constantly. Take a moment now to identify the number of times in the past hour you, your mind drifted to some previous event in your life. Perhaps your eyes wandered to a favourite picture of you and long-departed family members, or maybe you inadvertently came across your high school transcript where, while you were looking for something else. What was the name of that chemistry teacher? As common as it is to dig into your treasure trove of past memories, research on the topic has received surprisingly little attention. The bulk of memory research focuses on re- recall of information that investigators pre- present during the course of an experiment. You might be asked, for example, to recount the set, a set of words, numbers, or shapes while the experiment experimenter rec- records your accuracy and the length of time it took you to come up with the stimuli. Uh, indeed, during such research, you actually have to drown out any stray thoughts that pop into your head, such as whether the experimenter reminds you of someone from your past. So what does it like? What does it feel like to think about the past? Apart from apart from whether a thought about the past makes you feel good or not, and all of them do, of course, it can be productive to understand what it feels like just to engage in the mental "quote unquote" time travel that takes you back to your previous experiences. In a comprehensive review paper, Université Grenoble Alpes, 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 Alps, Alps, Alpes, Chris Moulin and colleagues, 2022, proposed that what guides the entire reconstructive process about the, pro- about the past is the feeling of familiarity. From their standpoint, familiarity is, quote, a subjective feeling arising from a fluent processing of a stimulus, not an inherent feature of anything you have seen before. Uh, by fluency, authors mean phenomenolo- phenomen- phenomenological familiarity phenomenological i wonder when i'm ever going to say that word again (laughs) uh maybe in this article who knows uh putting these terms into plain language the authors mean that you identify an autobiographical memory by the fact that it feels as though it comes from your own past experience in a way all memory refers to past experiences such as your knowledge of historical facts uh, but in all biographical memory, the feeling of familiarity originates from your own past life. So what are the problems with autobiographical memory? The fact you forget shit, of course. Uh, the idea of fluency immediately raises the possibility that it can occur with respect to an event that never happened or not in the way you think it did. In Deja Vu, for example, you erroneously believe that you've had the exact same experience before. 
you might also have a forcible autobiographical memory that you carry with you for years uh, without realising that it's wrong. Perhaps you've carried what you thought was a fact about your high school prom, namely that no one asked you not asked to accompany you as their date. It's always made you feel a bit like a loser. Years later, you get an email from the person who actually had reached out to you in high school, hoping to re- reconnect again now. Another aspect of fluency that Moulin and his fellow authors point to is that it can arise either on its own or through guided effort. Now, spontaneous glance towards that photo of you and your family member falls into the category of involuntary, as does deja vu. Uh, Many stimuli around you can serve to have this effect, even the photo memories that show up in your social media or smartphone photo feed. The category of voluntary autobiographical memories has an entirely different trajectory. Here, fluency is something you seek, not something that occurs on its own. As the French authors point out, it's that struggle to find an old autobiographical memory, such as the name of a long-ago place or person, that falls into the category of of tip-of-the-tongue effect. The knowledge is there, not literally on your tongue, but buried deeply and inaccessibly somewhere in the repository of your past experiences. I hate those memories. I hate those memories that you you just can't, can't quite just piece together, and it really pisses you off. I hate them. If you're lucky, there's someone else you can consult with whom you share that say, uh, that experience so that together you could reconstruct it. Indeed, the author suggests that in this respect, autobiographical memory can have a strong social component as we build some of our most lasting personal memories with the people we know and love. All of this begs the question of whether there is such a thing as involuntary autobiographical memory after all. Quote, it seems likely, the author suggests, uh, that physiological uh, processes can bring information to consciousness in an uncontrolled and meaningless fashion, unquote. In other words, apart from daydreaming, even what seems to be involuntary is like likely to be stimulated by cues from the environment, even if you're not aware of them. Uh, sometimes, Moulin et al. note, you can fill in uh, the retrieval gaps by relying on scaffolding or building the outlines of an event of the event from the knowledge of what generally happens at similar events. You may not remember your high school graduation per se, but it's safe to conclude that people walked across a stage, had a diploma handed to them, and were surrounded by family and friends. This framework won't help you, though, if you're trying to recall what you had for breakfast on that day. These ideas should provide you with some intriguing avenues to explore the next time you try or are cued to gain the details of a tip-of-the-tongue past event. If you enjoy travelling down those avenues, you can enhance your fluency by taking advantage of the props available to you through such methods of verification as internet and social media searches and simply asking your friends and family from the past to share what they remember. In the process of socially reconstructing your past, you can also go back uh, and restore relationships that may have fallen by the wayside, such as that prom date. Even if you don't come up with reminders of past people, places and things, this can help you fill in some of the missing blanks from your personal life story. As moving in the title note, through such efforts, quote, we arrive at constructing a rich, com- uh, complex representation of our personal past. Unquote. To sum it up, although it can be challenging to come up short when you're trying to piece together the details of your past, the Moulin et al. study uh, shows that it can be worth effort, worth the effort. The treasury of memory, uh, treasury of memories you've built up in your past can enrich your life as you try to gain greater self-understanding now and into the future and that's kind of why right um i i I feel anyway at the end of the day that we you know remember shit um even when i was um i was having conversations um with d the other day um who recently moved into his um uh his own spot congratulations to him and mary and um we were just um we were just chilling after um uh, after like a day of just uh you know painting and just you know fixing his house up uh, fixing his flat up, and um, we were just t- we were just randomly talking about games that we played, and it was just like, what was like, what was that really underrated game that you played? You know what I mean? And for me, it was um this one called Pink Panther. Um, well, it, it was the Pink Panther game. It was on like PS One or something. Uh, I forget the rest of the name, but uh, it was just so good. And we were playing like clips from it. And I was like, oh my gosh, the memories fucking hell, it's coming flooding back of me just like sweating that game and really shitting myself because. It's a really if you if you're a you playing that game, I can imagine it just uh you know really pressures you. 
Um, but yeah, he was like uh, thinking of another game. I think his was like um, Pitfall or something. Um, that was just really odd. Like some leopard was talking to this dude, and then this dude turned into a penguin. It was just like really confusing. It was just so like just nobody quality quality controlled. It was crazy, crazy. Um, but you know, just stuff like that. Um, it's it's very fascinating um, to to grasp that um, to grasp that random memory of me playing Pink Panther and me really fucking loving it. Um, it's just uh, it's it's great and it's great having those moments and uh, being able to remember those things. That's why that's why stuff like um you know mentally debilitating diseases like dementia and Alzheimer's scares me a lot honestly to think about because I don't want to I, and obviously you know we're bound to lose memories right we're gonna I'm not I don't even know what I had for breakfast last week you know what I mean just stuff like that but. You know, I even when I go to shows, I wish that I could remember every single one vividly, but I don't. I go, I've gone to so many. You know, I've taken pictures of a majority of them in some fashion, whether it was on my phone from back in the day or just on video, or you know, through my camera now. But um, it's uh, you know, I don't remember all of them. I can't like you know, whip them all up in the top of my head, going like, oh yeah, I've been to this one, this one, this one. I've seen this one. Um, unless I, you know, see the artist on my phone, like, you know, new track has dropped or they dropped a new album or, you know, I see the, I see the act, um, on, you know, Dice or, uh, you know, just on a, on a show, on a, a show ticketing site. That's the only reason you're going to remember them, right? Um, but in, interesting. it's interesting regardless. Um, I always find memories interesting. Um, but yeah, that's a, I guess a psychology of memory of autobiographical memory for you. I finish up with society, and uh, this is um, on the on the precipice of uh, the of Windrush 75, which is the 75th anniversary of HMT Empire Windrush arriving in Britain. Um, that is on Windrush Day, uh, 22nd of June. Um, but I wanted to get it started here and just um, preempt, um, just in case, and uh, talk about the Windrush in this fashion. Um, this is an article from the Conversation written by Les Johnson, who is a visiting research fellow at the Birmingham School of Media at Birmingham City University. And it's called The Windrush Generation, How a Resilient Caribbean Community Made a Lasting Contribution to British Society. So let's jump right in. As a young boy in 1962, I remember arriving in England from Jamaica on a Boac jet plane. It seemed to me like I was going to the moon. The air hostess who accompanied me was the first white person I'd ever seen. My father greeted me eagerly at London's Paddington Station amid the swirling smoke of steam trains. It had been two years since we last met, but I recognised him immediately. Fourteen years earlier, the arrival of Empire Windrush at London's Tilbury Docks in 1948 was a pivotal moment in British history, marking the beginning of a significant wave of migration from the Caribbean. This became known as the Windrush Generation, and signified a new chapter in the history of the United Kingdom. Since then, it has assumed a whole symbolic status, commemorated annually on Windrush Day, observed 22nd of June. This turning point formed uh, reformed Anglo-Caribbean identities as the Windrush generation settled in Britain, leaving their mark on history, society and culture. The arrivals serve as a poignant reminder of the dynamic and fluid nature of migration, identity and societal transformation. But how did this momentous event come about? And what were the factors that led to the settlement of these British citizens? These questions are important because Windrush history is not included in the UK school curriculum. Tell me about it. Resulting in an incomplete view of Britain's history of cultural diversity. Race and Equality Think Tank, the Running Mead Trust, has described the Windrush story as, quote, an integral part of British history, unquote. While there are now numerous celebratory, celebratory events and commemorations on or around Windrush Day, on once the festiv- festivities end, there is little permanence. There are no major collections or permanent Windrush exhibitions. There has been no museum dedicated to its history with the significance of other major British museums. And there is no major institution for children to view the legacies of the Windrush generation and their impact on Britain. These are just some of the reasons uh, I recently founded the National Windrush Museum. Good for you, brother. I want to visit. The British invasion, uh, invasion, <laughs> invitation to Caribbean. 
Freudian slip. Uh, to come to Britain after the Second World War can be traced back to the British Nationality Act of 1948. This conferred British citizenship and the right to settle in the UK of, on all people from the British col- colonies to help rebuild the country. The Windrush generation refers to the people who migrated from the Caribbean countries to the United Kingdom between 1948 and 1971. However, Caribbean immigration uh, did not cease after this period, and migrants have settled ever since, influencing Britain's demographic composition. Major urban centres like London, Birmingham, Manchester, Bristol, Liverpool, Leeds, and Preston became fo- Preston just coming out of the woodwork there. Okay, become focal point became focal points for these communities. <coughs> when they established vibrant neighbourhoods and thriving cultural institutions, contributing to the overall diversity and multicultural fabric of these cities. Despite the open invitation, <laughs> invasion, uh, the reception the Windrush pioneers received was often hostile. Caribbean migrants were, and still are, subjected to poor housing conditions, with accommodation in hostels often overcrowded and lacking basic amenities. In 1948, an underground shelter in Clapham South tube station was used as a temporary housing for people from the Caribbean. The types of employment available to Windrush generation were often limited to low-paying jobs such as cleaning, factory work and driving. Great, the same year in 1948, the NHS has been a has been an important source of employment for members of the Windrush community since its inception. Many Caribbean Im- migrants uh, found work in hospitals, nursing homes and other healthcare facilities playing a crucial role in the development and functioning of the NHS. They contributed their skills, dedication and expertise helping to shape and improve healthcare provision in the UK. Some devise ingenious self-help microfinancing schemes, such as the Partners Initiative, where small groups banded together and shared from the combined pot of money weekly. This is how many of the Windrush generation afforded airfares to send for their families, and how my parents were able to send for me. I did not know that, actually. I did not know that was a concept. The institutional racism and poor conditions endured by the Windrush generation led to people starting their own businesses, Barbers and hairdressers, fashion and design, restaurants and cookshops, a variety of trades, market stalls, uh, independent black churches and dancehall music. These businesses were important, not just in generating a living, but also in developing flourishing communities and creating black British culture. In addition to their contribution the work to the workforce, the Windrush generation and their descendants have made a significant social and cultural impact on British society. They brought with them the Caribbean culture, art, sports, traditions and customs, enriching the cultural landscape of the United Kingdom. From food and music to fashion, literature, language and even cricket, Caribbean influences became ingrained in British popular culture, fostering a sense of diversity and multiculturalism. Sam King MBE was one uh, one of the notable figures of the Windrush generation who played a significant role in the establishment of the annual, annual Windrush Day on 22nd of June. Born in Jamaica in 26, he served in the British Army during the Second World War before coming to Britain in 1948. King went on to become the first black mayor of Southwark in London and was involved in a number of community projects and organisations. Other important fig- Windrush figures include Claudia Jones, a political and pioneering journalist, Stuart Hall, cultural theorist and political activist, Bill Morris, a trade union leader who became the first black general secretary of the T- uh, Transport and General Workers Union, Diane Abbott, who became the first black woman to be elected to British Parliament, and Bernie Grant, who also served as MP and was a prominent campaigner for racial equality and social justice. Hall was a Jamaican-born British cultural theorist who played a significant role in shaping our understanding of race, identity and culture. Hall argued that identity is not fixed, but rather is constructed through social and cultural practices. He also emphasised the role of power and control in shaping culture. In the context of the Windrush generation, Hall's theories are are particularly relevant relevant as they help us to understand the ways in which Caribbean migrants and in particular the Windrush generation identities were constructed and represented in British culture. One of the most shameful episodes in this history is the Windrush scandal which saw people who have lived through lived in the UK for decades including some who had friends who arrived on the Windrush being wrongfully deported wrongly deported or denied access to public services like the NHS uh, excuse me um wanted to mention there was like um, I saw a story I forget dude's name but um, one of them's homeless um, and uh, who who is who's directly affected by the uh, by the scandal itself and he is now homeless um, that's how damaging um, the Windrush scandal has been um, is is really destroyed lives um, and the fact that nobody has actually been 
been in jail for for doing all this um, is crazy to me. I'm talking to you, Theresa May, um, and every other Home Secretary after her. Um, they they still continue this. They still continue this um, in some fashion, and yeah, it's demonic. Um, but anyway. This uh, British government scandal came to light in 2017 when British citizens of uh, Caribbean descent who had migrated to the UK between 48 and 71 were wrongly classified as illegal immigrants. They then faced deportation, detention, and some even lost their homes and livelihoods. There you go. This gross injustice has affected many lives, highlighting the systemic racism that exists in Britain. Its impact is still being felt today. The BLM movement has been instrumental in bringing attention to these issues and it's important in highlighting the systemic racism in Britain cannot be overstated. The toppling of statues of figures linked to the slave trade and colonialism, such as Andrew Colston in Bristol and Robert Milligan in London, sparked a wider conversation about decolonisation at all levels of society and the need to confront Britain's colonial past. According to the Museums Association, there are about 2,500 museums in Britain. Yet there is no black culture museum or established school curriculum that focuses on the heritage of the Windrush generation. Uh, that's where I highlight the black curriculum, um, which um, is a thing. And also the Free, free Black University, who um, recently dropped a really good and really fascinating uh, journal um, filled with uh, radical um, poetry and also articles as well. So um, Free Black University, if you want to look them up. In 2021, I founded the National Windrush Museum, which I chair. The museum plays an important role in collecting, researching, documenting, and ex- exhibiting artefacts and stories about the Windrush generation and those who came before and after them. The museum provides a vital link to the past and a gateway to the future, enabling us to understand and appreciate the contributions of the Windrush generation to Britain. It will also serve as a valuable resource for schools and universities, providing an opportunity for collaboration in the development of curricula, research and study centres and libraries across around the world. Many stories and hidden narratives of the Windrush generation need to be unearthed, told and preserved. As part of the second wave of Windrush settlers and, an academ- and as an academic researcher who innovated the concept of cultural visualisation, this is important work. Cultural visual- visualisation involves the visual research, portrayal and analysis of various aspects of culture, including music, film, fashion, visual arts, dance, literature and more. My work looks at, quote, doing culture differently, unquote, and I wanted this new venture to adopt the idea of doing museums differently. The National Windrush Museum provides a life laboratory in which to explore and develop this concept, which I hope will have a significant cultural impact on the heritage sector. The 75th anniversary of Windrush Generation is a poignant opportunity to shed light on a momentous event in British history so often neglected in our schools. This milestone marks a transformative chapter that reshaped Britain's fabric and ushered in a vibrant new culture. The founding of the National Windrush Museum stands as a vital, moving and significant historical moment by documenting, exhibiting and explaining the enduring legacies of the Windrush generation. The museum becomes a powerful testament to their contributions. Its ethos fills a crucial gap in our understanding of Britain's history, ensuring that these stories are preserved and celebrated as integral parts of our national narrative <sighs> so that's the that came you know um that was relatively um good just overall you know um what's the word overall uh look you know into <laughs> what uh what the windrush generation is if you are if you are unaware if this is your first time listening to but an episode of what's good um, I have, you know, talked about it, you know, several times uh, over over the years. Um, but yeah, man, I really, I really enjoy the fact. I really appreciate the fact that there's even a Windrush Museum. I actually genuinely did not know there was one, um, and now I do, and now I, <laughs> and now I'm aware they exist, and um, that is amazing to. That's amazing to know and uh, really appreciate the fact that there is a, a museum for this because I really believe there should be. And it's not even that, but I really do feel that there should be curriculum on this. There should be uh, there should be uh, a, 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 a true thing that um, uh, that people take account of and everybody learns in school. Is there really a, is it really a bad thing to um to, to 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 for people to know about the Windrush generation? 
and to and to and all of the things that have, have been affected have been um, influenced now. They're influenced by Caribbean culture, you know, um, music, film, TV, um, food, just fashion, you know, just any anything like the 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 you can't. It's so it is so fucking undeniable. It is so undeniable of how a in in a space of what was it forty eight to seventy one. So you know, just under. 20 something years is so crazy how even for me personally thinking about it um that i am a second generation that of uh legacy of that legacy where my uh grandmother Catherine came through from Montserrat and then my pops was born here and then i was born here and it, it always fascinates me thinking about that. And uh, I hope one day I'll just have time uh, to really just uh, to, re- to really look it up, to really look up stuff and to go places and maybe such as the Windrush Museum and, uh, you know, really and, re- and really, um, you know, just uh, immerse myself into the into the history. Um, you know, I've, I've done it for a few years albeit you know scratching the surface and in response to the scandal and um you know around this time when it is Windrush Day and stuff like that but I I kind of want to you know I want to do reading on it I want to um I want to I want to hear stories especially I want to hear anecdotal stories about people that came here on a boat or a plane uh not expecting how fucking cold it was going to be first of all that's most of their first that's most of the first responses i keep hearing uh when they first arrived to england and uh, funny enough um, my pops actually went to see um a play um uh, by a uh, by lenny henry um just trying to i'm trying i'm trying to reach to i'm not trying to reach for the book as well uh reach for the script book that you gave me um august in england um that uh, lenny henry plays and um you know just things like that that's that's a thing right that's a that's a a creative and obviously um you know fictional story but you know i'm sure lenny henry <laughs> you know did a lot of it based on you know personal experience and maybe some anecdotal uh, information as well i'm sure he did so um yeah it's just um i really appreciate it and you know as a as a you know, a direct descendant of it, um, it's of of the concept is. It it makes me it feels it feels rewarding in some sense, and hopefully one day I can just uh you know pay it back in some fashion. But anyway, ladies and gentlemen, I'll leave it there. From the Fifth End Podcast Network, I've been trying to tell you this been was good. Intro music was too much by Vanilla. Thanks to Chill Music for the use track. You can find both their links in the full show notes. And thanks to Happy Hire for the bit of use charismatic charismatic for the interlude. You can also find his link in the full show notes. And with that said, I hope you all have a good week. I shall always try and do the same. But until next time, take it easy, ladies and gentlemen.